Welcome to episode 156, Prioritizing Reflection, the Value of Clinical Supervision for the Addiction Workforce, featuring Samson Teclamarium, Licensed Professional Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am delighted today to be joined by my colleague, Samson Teclamarium. He is a licensed professional counselor and also the vice president of clinical services for Behavioral Health Group. And today he is joining us in a conversation about the importance of supervision in the treatment space. And this is a topic that is very close to my heart because I worked in treatment for a number of years. Um, and I know it's close to Samson's heart as well. So thank you for uh, joining us, Samson, and also thank you for our listeners tuning in on this topic. Um, so, Samson, why don't you tell our listeners a bit more about you and how you came to have this specialization? Yeah, thanks, Beth. I mean, I, you know, the best answer I can give is I would not be where I am in my career without clinical supervisors. There's no way. Um, I do know a bunch of people who have made it in spite of <laughs> clinical supervision. So, you know, that's kind of like the two sides of the coin. Like some things in life you get passionate about because someone didn't do it well. And you're like, I'm determined, you know, to fix this or do it better. And some things in life you're there really because folks, you know, laid the path, you know, in front of you. And I, I would say I'm part of the latter is I really had some incredible supervisors. I will definitely shout them out, you know, throughout this um, time together. Ditto. Um, I am smiling and nodding as you say that because I, I could not have <laughs> learned almost anything had it not been for good clinical supervision. Um, so I don't even know where to start because this is such a big topic. From your perspective, you have a very forest through the trees view on this because you are high up in the organizational hierarchy to see how all of these pieces fit together. From your perspective, looking at treatment as a whole, particularly substance abuse treatment facilities, what do you see that happens organizationally that causes a breakdown of clinical supervision? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be the easiest answer, you know, and, and it's so hard to accept this as counselors, but, but money is a driver, you know, and unfortunately we have so many other things in our work that are reimbursable and what's not reimbursable sometimes is our learning, our growth, our professional development, and even how we are monitoring the quality care of our patients, clinical supervision. And so what's the first to go when we're overburdened, when we have more patients than staff, um, sometimes what's first to go is clinical supervision. It's a cut corner, you know? So I think that's why it's the biggest issue is because it lacks consistency in a lot of our programs. And when we do see clinical supervision, you know, uptick in terms of consistency, we see all the other data points and key performance indicators rise. So we see patient satisfaction rise. We see patient safety, patient engagement, patient retention, showing up, you know, for appointments. We see all these other really important, you know, treatment areas get better when clinical supervision is more consistent. And yet we cut that corner, you know, pretty often. Um, and so that, I think that's kind of the the shortest answer. I mean, the dream is I wish it was reimbursable. There's a couple of states who have piloted it, and there's a couple of grants that support it, um, depending on what state you're in. And so, so there's there's an opportunity there, but we we should all kind of function under the 
expectation that if it is not a reimbursable hour, how do we still make it a priority um, and, and, and make it a key stake of, of what we do and how we do it? You bring up a really good point, which is the impact of the dollar. And coming from my background, working with Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, um, you end up with so many different grants, so many needs and hats that program directors are trying to wear. And historically, and I'm sure you'll probably agree, when we look at public funding-based programs, there is such a heavy price um, to pay uh, with any with any minute, hour you spend, like what is the consequence for quote unquote productivity? And that if supervision is not considered part of that productivity, it's so easy to get put on the chopping block. Right, right. Yeah. And and with, with so many, when you think about it, with so many um, counselors coming into the field with limited experience, a lot of their understanding the workforce comes from the workforce. You know, a K-CREP university doesn't teach you how to write a progress note, you know, um, unfortunately, right? And and they also, in addiction treatment specifically, only require one elective hour on addiction. So in LPC, in LCSW, LMSW, uh, LMFTI, any of these credentials can come into the field with literally zero hours of education on addiction treatment, other than differential diagnosis, maybe how to run a group, but not on the, the fundamentals of how how to document uh, the services we deliver, right? How to track them, how to do chart auditing. They may have never even heard the phrase chart auditing before. And yet it's a fundamental part of their day to day, you know, when they, when they get into the field. So, you know, how do they learn this? I mean, yeah, we have some formal trainings that sometimes we provide. Um, we, you may have an LMS, a learning management system, but, but the truth is, is that all those training modules almost don't do anything if you don't have a mentor, if you don't have a, a true clinical supervisor to give you feedback, coaching, and just kind of keep nudging you in the direction of compliance, adherence, or, or really just how to function in the field. So in the conversation about clinical supervision, we generally put that in the heading of something that's required and only necessary for folks who are pre-licensed. So for the interns, associates, whatever particular uh, language your state uses. Do you see in the addiction space that when you're working with a licensed team, clinical supervision just goes by the wayside because you have the quote unquote independent judgment <laughs> that the state licensing board has given you. So, so it's, it's very easy at that point to just get rid of clinical supervision altogether because you're no longer required to do it in order to keep interns. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It's like really what you're asking is what's our motivator, you know? Because if if the motivator is okay, it's mandated because this is a limited permit, you know, someone with an I or an A at the end of their credential. Um you know, that in and of itself is is you're essentially adhering to the the lowest bar of expectations, you know? So so you're not even trying to elevate beyond beyond that low bar and saying, "Okay, what's the best practice? Why is that a requirement?" It's not just a, a requirement for education and experience purposes. It's also a requirement so that we're not um, lone rangers, you know, in, in a really, really sometimes dark space. If you're seeing 20 patients, I guarantee you one of those patients is going to challenge something personal to you. No matter how seasoned you are in this field, you cannot protect that personal attack, you know, kind of on you. Um, you can't do that all by yourself. It, it, it doesn't even make sense. In fact, if you do so, you're sort of going against the grain of what you're coaching and teaching your patients, aren't you? Um, you're, you're sort of encouraging them to always get help. You know, I really love these BetterHelp commercials. I'm glad they're spending money on it. Like, hopefully it'll help us get help. But there's some hilarious, you know, 
betterhelp.com commercials out there. And, and some of them are like, you know, someone who's, who's floating out there in the ocean and people are trying to toss them like a life preserver. Come on, we'll help you. It's, no, I got it. I got it. You know, I won't drown. And, you know, so, so you always see, you know, these moments of someone just kind of trying to handle a lot of pressure or weight on their own. And I would almost argue that the longer you are in this field, the more clinical supervision you need, not more in terms of frequency, but more in terms of consistency. You may not need to report to the state, you know, four hours a week or two hours a week. Like it may not be that exact frequency, but you do need that check-in. You do need that partner or colleague or senior member of the profession to connect with you and check in with you on your cases, how you're managing them and whether or not they're managing you, you know? Um, and I think that actually becomes a bigger need over time as we get, you know, maybe sometimes edged, you know, in this field and get bitter to some things we've experienced. I'm glad you bring up that element because I think it kind of crashes into the burnout associated with a particular workplace and with a particular culture. And then also the possibility for the development of compassion fatigue and that clinical supervision can be a way to monitor and correct that. And that's what the research has shown. Um, but I think it is really easy for us to trim that away administratively. Um, so what happens? What happens when we don't have adequate supervision? Why don't you tell us some horror stories? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I won't call out names, but I'll say here's, here's something funny. You know, Beth and I chatted a little bit before and just realized how many, um, connections in our in our field we had we we both worked for a past agency at the same time and didn't even know it you know because it was national and i'll tell you something that i learned from that agency was um just the power of clinical supervision when it comes to maintaining boundaries when we started looking at reports of ethical violations you know in a national company at a national level it was never like an employee who's always skipped their trainings that ended up in a boundary issue. It was almost always an employee who may have not had any level of accountability. It, so, so think about this. Think about boundaries. Th think about someone who crosses a boundary. Is it is it Cinemax? Is it like, hey, my name's Joe. Hey, my name's Jane. We're in bed together. Like what? No, I mean, it's not like that's not a thing, right? Normally, what happens is you've worked with a patient for months. They've noticed little details about you. They've noticed that you have a picture of a family member. They they may have talked about how they had a relapse because someone close to them passed, and you may have self-disclosed, oh, I just lost someone recently. All of a sudden, you show up in a session, 90 days in with this patient, and you sit down, and they you say to them, hey, how was your week? And they say to you, well, I mean, how about you? How are you doing? Didn't you lose someone a month ago? And so now that intimacy gets flipped a little and they pull, you know, more and more pieces, right? And let's say that the people who are close to you aren't checking in with you. Let's say that there's a void that no one has asked you, how are you doing with that loss? I see you came back just one week after bereavement. Are you really ready? You know, are you settled? I see you've got a full caseload less than a month after bereavement time. Like no one in terms of your colleague is checking in with you, but this one patient has enough, let's say empathy, right? Or counter-transference, you know, or transference, but they have enough to ask and they start checking in with you. Now they're filling a void. And now week to week, you both are sharing, right? Can you see how that can evolve without a supervisor present just to check in? 
just to give you some accountability, right? And and so I think that's where we see it. We see a lot of these boundary violations occur in in light of someone not having any accountability, not having any one to promote their own self-awareness, right? How they're actually doing in the room with these patients. Um, and, and so I, when we say, okay, how can we see it go wrong? That's how it goes wrong is no one even checked in with this counselor, with this physician, with this nurse. And we see this in every single sector of helping is, is that power differential changes, you know, of them sharing and us listening to them sharing and us sharing to them being the only one who's checking in with us. Intimacy develops, trust develops, and it turns into something else, you know? You led with the boundary foot. Do you see that as being really the primary benefit of clinical supervision? Is it, is it about boundaries? Is it about education? Like, how do you break that down when you've... So for our listeners, Samson has worked in national organizations as various kinds of directors of training and professional development. So he has a very unique perspective on this. So is it is supervision really about boundaries or, or how would you break it down of like this this is what we need to focus on in supervision? Yeah, the reason it's so important is no. It's it's about so many other things, right? So I'll 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 steal something, I guess, from so Dr. Corey Hayes, we all know him as like the one of the founding, you know, um one of one of one of these groups who helped find like core clinical competencies. Um, Dr. Moulton and Murturi in clinical supervision in the helping professions. This is the second edition practical guide. They they gave us four primary goals and then they wrote a whole textbook, you know, about a lot more. So one of them is yes, protecting is what it's called. That's one of the main goals of clinical supervision, protecting the welfare of patients. But there were three other goals. One is promoting professional growth and development. You know, we talked about all those credentials. A lot of those credentials come into the field as generalists. And there's nothing wrong with being a generalist, right? But can a general physician perform neurosurgery? I mean, hopefully not on their first day as a general physician, but sure, could they grow into a neurosurgeon? Yeah, definitely. They could build a specialization. They can start earning hours, start getting coaching, start getting clinical supervision. We desperately need specialists as our understanding of neuroscience, of the mind, of mental health, promoting well-being as that evolves we definitely need specialists. So I think one area they talked about was promoting professional growth and development, helping that new professional assess where their giftedness is, where their track is, and start building, you know, in that direction, right? The the One of the other um, goals that they listed was monitoring. So monitoring the performance of counselors. Who's doing your individualized development plan? Who's helping you track your goals helping you grow towards your goals. You say you want to pick up a second credential, you know, in addiction treatment, but do you even know what that is? What board it is? Are you going to the right board? You know, is it billable in our state? Is, you know, someone to help you navigate that? You have no idea how many times counselors who didn't ask those questions, get those supervision points, picked up the wrong credential. You know, they may have picked up a national credential, which is awesome. I love national credentials. I work for NADAC. I love them. Unless if you're in one of those states that's really nitpicky and requires you to have a state credential first. Well, now you just wasted a year and a half of your life and you've got to do it over again. And it's usually because you didn't have someone who's seasoned in the field to help you make that step, right? And and so so there's a lot of small decisions we have to make as professionals. And yes, being monitored or receiving monitoring of our performance and our performance goals 
is really critical. Also helping us to curb edges and areas where we're not as sharp or not as strong, you know, so some folks are really good you know, in terms of people person. So their patients love them. If you did a survey, a patient satisfaction survey, they may get 100%, right? But if you do a compliance check, you may see that, you know, 18 out of 30 of their billable hours were actually received and, and not recouped. So they're almost at a 50, 60%. That's a failure, you know? Um, they're doing hours that are not counting, right? So that's not just about money. It's about are you adhering to key stakeholders' expectations for how you're delivering your clinical services? Again, there's like that wild, wild west style or that's, you know, do we want to work in a pocket of evidence-based programs and practices? And so monitoring is really key for that, especially if we want to, you know, include fidelity in our practice, right? A lot of folks say they're doing CBT. How do you know it's CBT? If no one's really monitoring or doing a fidelity check to see that it's honestly delivering what it says it's delivering, you know? Um, and then the fourth that they put in there was empowering. And I think the empowering counselors to both, you know, heal and be well, you know, in their own work, but also to supervise themselves one day and promote that autonomy, that empowering goal of clinical supervision that, that they listed in this textbook it helps with that self-care kind of burnout prevention that you talked about. You know, some, some folks call it... Um, compassion fatigue? Yes, fatigue. Yeah, 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 compassion fatigue. Here's the cool thing with fatigue. Did y'all know that there's usually some alerts and alarms that show up before that happens? You know, that's what's crazy, right, about fatigue. Like, you may be breathing heavy before you have a heart attack. I don't know. You know, that could happen, right? So there's usually some signs and symptoms before you get there. A lot of times, we're not the best, at paying attention to our own signs and symptoms. So a colleague, a supervisor, a friend, a peer, you know, having someone there to support that monitoring and that empowering of your own, um, your own awareness of, of, of potential fatigue and compassion fatigue, that can go a long way because you're catching things at the level of alert, not the level of complete burnout, you know? I'm appreciating you bringing up that point. And I, I want to jump back to something you said, which <laughs> for my role and my experience makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. You said stakeholders, like obligations to stakeholders. And I think one of the complexities, and I, I invite you to speak on this topic, is the um, the behind the curtainness, if you will, of treatment in general, the use of intuition, the use of two people in a room and the healing aspect that's there regardless of fidelity to an evidence-based practice. And then there's this whole other side of it with the stakeholders and utilization review and grants being funded, grants being rescinded, uh, recruitments from insurance companies. And I think, I, at least speaking for myself, and maybe the same was true for you, when I first started in the world of uh, community mental health, I had no knowledge of this stuff on the other side. I, I had knowledge of the progress note I was supposed to write or the 11 page DMH assessment. But there was this whole <laughs> dark side <laughs> um, yeah. to treatment that I didn't understand. And I, I, in reflecting back, I also see that the fact that I didn't understand it was part of the problem. Um, because I, I couldn't see how the pieces fit together because I didn't even know those pieces existed until I was part of the management management team and then I was one of those pieces. Um, but it's like you don't you don't appreciate all of these sis, these systems coming together and why we have productivity the way we have why we do treatment plans. No one ever explained that to me. We didn't discuss I know. it. Oh my gosh! Right. Um, and and it wasn't until my internship 
that there was actual discussion of here's what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. But in my doctor in my um, my uh, post bachelor's program, we didn't discuss it. Um, why we were doing it. I just, I think I had one class by one professor who happened to like treatment planning and she talked about it and that was it. Um, And your point about the hole in the system of like what we get from our education and then the application to real world. I think that's a really critical hole where people get burnt out because they're under-trained and then they're lost. And you, before we started recording, you had joked that, you know, if you're under supported working in this kind of a pretty high risk environment, you know, if you're going to, let's say, residential treatment or psychiatric hospitalization, let's say, people burn out and they just quit and they leave the field altogether. And the next thing you know, they're working in human resources at Target. Right. Um, <laughs> can you, <Yeah. laughs> true story, um, <laughs> can you speak to that phenomenon and like the, the rate of turnover in comparison to clinical supervision and systems that really hold staff? Yeah. I mean, there's not, there's probably not a one hour gap on earth, you know, that we can fill in the answer to turnover in our workforce, you know, unless we go to like a hyperbolic time chamber in Dragon Ball Z. Um, you know, so, so, but I will say that one big issue is exactly what you said. We're not always prepared for this administrative work. We came in here because we wanted to help people, or maybe we got into this field because we needed help. And we were trying to figure out some trash that happened to us or happened in our family or happened to someone we love. And we want that trash to make sense, you know, in our psyche, you know, and we want it to either look like gold or look like not as foggy, you know. Um, And so now we've achieved that. We've at least made it make sense. You know, there's also the root cause myth, like, well, now I'm at the root cause, but there's still no solution. Doesn't feel better. So we're still holding on to some, some kind of pain. I think what happens is a lot of folks come into the field for the concept of helping, whether it's helping me, helping others, helping family, and knowing how to help. But we definitely didn't come in here to figure out how to do paperwork. You know what I mean? Like that's, I don't know that I've met a, a clinical intern that would answer that question that way. You know, hey, why'd you come into this field? Why do you want to get this degree? So I could get really good at paperwork. So I can be an awesome chart auditor, you know? It's like, well, no. But I I think what curbs the gaps is it it does help to have really good and sound training from experienced individuals. I had a great trainer on treatment, assessment and treatment planning that gave me an uh, an analogy once. And he said, um, it was in New York. He said, he said, well, Samson, you know, have you ever have you ever given someone directions and you know told them how to get to your house or something like that? And I'm like, yeah, I'll use MapQuest. You know, someone help me know if MapQuest is still a thing, um, or you use, you know, or you put it, you know, in an app right now, or you know, but you know, so 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 then he said, well, yeah, you gotta give someone a plan. You don't just like walk them into a dark forest and say, oh, just trust me, I'll get you there. You know, and and that's like when you hear it that way, you think, oh my gosh, how could I be doing treatment without a plan? Without a plan of care, and 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 how can I make sure I'm communicating this in a way that is understood by by a variety of cultural backgrounds and education levels and societal you know norms? Like, can everyone understand this plan of care that I'm writing out for them or that I'm making with them? You know, um, and and so when he kind of helped me see it that way, just in terms of giving someone a plan for directions, it helped. It bought. It gave me value. It made me feel like, oh. I'm actually helping more effectively by being a good documenter, you know, and, and, and again, that connection had to happen for me to, to start buying into it. Right. Um, I know it seems 
minimalistic, but I think that buy-in is really critical for folks in our field. And I, I don't think anyone, I don't think too, enough people take the time to help us connect those dots and get that buy-in when we're learning new concepts like chart auditing, treatment plan review, care plan, you know, updates, you know, things like that. I agree. And I think part of what I've seen, and I'm sure you've probably seen the same thing, is that when we're looking at the required coursework for these professionals, very rarely is there any component there that focuses on documentation. And yet, if you look at the state laws or the law and ethics regulations for a particular state or entity, it'll specify that you need to keep, quote unquote, sound clinical documentation. But no one really says what that is. And so to me, it's always been like driving on the Autobahn but there is actually a speed limit and no one told you what the speed limit was. And right. I think it, I would imagine it really contributes to burnout. And, and speaking for myself, when I went from my outpatient um, internship, well, what was it called at the time? Um, it's like, well, I was still in school. And then when I actually started to be a therapist, you know, after graduation, working in a large facility, I literally remember doing the whole curl up in a ball under my desk and like shake back and forth thing because I couldn't get the documentation done um, because it was just so much stress. There was so much pressure to take new clients and we would get eight new admits and two would be mine and their details are very similar to the other 16 that I already had. And just this freak out that occurred in that environment and in retrospect, it actually was supervision that kept me from losing my mind off altogether. Um, so when we're looking at the benefits of supervision, you had said that it Im basically improves client outcomes is what you've seen in the research, and then hopefully would reduce um, dropouts by clinicians themselves. Are there other benefits that we need to be talking about? Because I think one of the things I imagine that, uh, and you've already tipped your hat to it, one of the hurdles is getting non-clinical executives to buy into the cost of supervision when it's not reimbursable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you now, this is, I'll say, you know, for our partners on that side, you know, things, you know, business partners, this is one thing I'll say is, is that I've, I've seen a tremendous amount of openness when, you know, rarely do they say, um, we don't have time for clinical supervision. I think that that gets interpreted by those on the field because there's other goals in front of us and priorities and we're always looking at census and numbers and this and that and so we may you know unintentionally interpret that clinical supervision is not a priority because it's not put right in front of us every week you know and and so so i think i i, I don't see that there's folks on the other side that are telling us directly I don't, i've never seen it honestly we don't have time for clinical supervision I, I i've never seen it right so so they're open to it i think honestly we have to own how we are crafting our environment we we can we are the clinicians you know so people who are credentialed clinicians in a program they've got to know when to keep clinical supervision at the forefront of a priority and the moment it starts getting delayed and all we've had for three weeks is quick team meetings quote unquote and we're kind of writing that off as supervision we know that ain't no supervision right we're doing these team meetings that are highly administrative you know they're, they're really about our operational goals and then we we dismiss and just go back to independently managing our caseloads with no idea of the highest ethical or, or relapse risk in our in our programs. That's the alarm. Like now, it's like, oh, okay, we need to get back. But it's it's up to us to own that and to bubble it up. Now, now you also asked about other benefits, you know, to kind of keep keep on our minds. So one is 
Um, you know, and, and again, this came from the same text, a clinical supervision in the helping professions, a practical guide. So, so uh, one was retention, and retention is, in, is twofold. So consistent clinical supervision leads to improved staff retention. Now, what's funny is, is it's not even really about the type of supervision. It's just about whether or not it exists. Um, Dr. Tanya Lashober did this study with the University of Georgia um, in 2013. It got validated again in 2016. And, and, and the study was on effective clinical supervision, ECS. And, and they were testing out different models. They were testing out different educational disparities between the supervisor and the counselor. All these different things that you, you would assume matter when we say, you know, how do we define effective clinical supervision? What they found was all those studies on, on different models and different educational disparities were inconclusive. And, and the only thing that showed a drastic difference was consistency, whether or not supervision actually occurred as scheduled. And so they actually defined effective clinical supervision. If I could find, if I could find the definition, I was trying to Google it. But um, Essentially, it got it got defined as supervision that happens consistently, and and oh, here it is. So um, they they defined effective clinical supervision in this study as building a consistent, structured, and clearly defined relationship with scheduled interactions between a senior licensed or certified professional and a newly licensed or certified professional. Um, again, that's Dr. Tanya Lashober. The study is called Effective Clinical Supervision in Substance Use Disorder Treatment Programs. Um, and counselor job performance. And, and and it was just very, I think the conclusion of saying, hey, is it actually occurring is, is something we've got to pay attention to because it's just about it happening. That actually will get you more bang for your buck than trying to, you know, identify the perfect model, right? Um, and, and so that that's kind of, the, I think that's, that's, you know, where I want to push is it impacts retention, you know, for our staff. It also impacts retention for patient retention because what we've known for a long time is staff retention leads to patient retention. If Beth is my counselor, you know, in January and it's now June and I'm coming in for a six-month check-in and oh. Beth is still my counselor, that retention upticks greatly versus me having to meet a new person. And now it's just a little bit more of a distance of trust and familiarity with the program, you know. I was smiling when you were talking about that because I could hear so much overlap with the alphabet soup of evidence-based practices. And so for the therapy land, it's like connection is the primary driver. And you're saying in the effective clinical supervision space, consistency is the oh primary driver. Oh my God, driver. there's so many parallels. Yeah. There's so many parallels between um, the treatment alliance or or therapeutic rapport, patient rapport, and supervisory alliance or supervision rapport. I mean, there's a lot of parallels between those two, you know, and, and part of it is, you know, predictability, creating a safe space, you know, consistency, you know, being a good listener. Like, I mean, these are, these are really key things that are not technically these evidence-based, like you said, alphabet soup, but they are indicators of patient rapport. Um, and, and, and this is how you see patients, you know, being more satisfied with the care being provided to them, but we also have that on the supervision side, is, is when the supervisor is present, accessible, you know, they may not be an expert on, on you know, TFCBT, they may not be an expert on, you know, relationship trauma repair or something that you really want to learn and grow at as a, as a new clinician, but, but what, what you really need from them is to be available, is to be accessible, is to actually offer some structure and some layout into how you are independently working and 
also, you know, coming in for that check-in. Um, because both are important, right? You can't really grow in this field if you're not trying out your own decision making on your own sometimes you have to right so you need both that autonomy and you also need your connection with your supervisor which by the way is the same with our patients they can't have the beth app you know in their pocket where it's like oh my god i'm in i'm dealing with a crisis let me text beth like that's not counseling you know that's something different right it's nice it's all it's pretty awesome to have that support but you don't really get to practice your own decision making you know so that autonomy element is also an an interesting parallel between the two i'm rethinking as you're talking about this, like rethinking my own supervision experiences in this framework and looking back for myself and, you know, for our listeners, I wonder if the same was true for you. My supervision at at many sites was sacred space. That was what we did every Thursday at 11. And that was sacred space. Um, And looking back on it, we were in very hot water, as I say, when the kitchen got hot in residential treatment, working with gang affiliated youth. And when things, as Samson and I were talking before the interview, when things went wrong, they went wrong very quickly. And so of course, emergencies happened. But barring emergencies, it sounds like these facilities were profoundly doing something right, because that was sacred space. Yes, you know, without a doubt. And and like you said, with emergencies, it's like they're going to come. We all adjust, you know, apply that flexibility and bounce back, right? It's like we can't let emergencies craft our culture. Um, if we do, then now we're pretty much saying our patients are the experts on treatment, not us, right? So there's there's a big difference between having emergencies and let them letting them design your environment of care. Um, you know, you can never let it go that far where all you are is, you know, a unit of, of clinical care that is responsive to crises. Um, there's more to it than that. That's again, like that bare base level, right? At some point you bounce back, you say, okay, we got to get the supervision back on schedule. Now I, I was fortunate. I had three pretty polar opposite supervision experiences. One was just like you. It was this sacred space. And I would say out of a year, I could honestly tell you three times in a year that that supervision got canceled or rescheduled. I mean, it was that consistent. Um, And usually it was someone got sick, you know, very last minute or, you know, something like that, but like three times. So it was very sacred, very consistent, very structured, very much of a case consultation model or case review model of of clinical supervision. Um, I also had another model that was like wild. It was the Milan systemic model of clinical supervision. So this is where you have a supervisor, a peer or a senior colleague that is on the other side of a one-way mirror. And they are watching and listening through a microphone into your session. And that supervision is very like in the moment, on time, you know, and you could, you could mimic that by doing recordings, by, you know, having, having an updated, you know, um, uh, privacy policy where you have someone sign off that they understand that you're receiving supervision and, and you are signing to give an agreement that, that a clinical supervisor is going to view this for training purposes. That could be in a video recorded session or an audio recorded session. Very, very common. And in fact, I have a fully licensed clinician that, that, um, that is doing that, you know, with me and, and I love it. I'm like, Hey, I'll sign it. Keep learning. Cause if you're learning as my counselor, that means I'm safer as your patient. And, and I feel like it's a benefit as a patient because I'm looking at it through the lens of a counselor versus a counselor who has never been observed for years because they've been fully licensed, right? Versus the counselor who has no accountability, you know, as a patient, you know, who do I feel safer with, right? In comparison. Um, And so, so I will say that Milan systemic was a learning factory. It was incredible. The amount of 
you know, pliability and flexibility I had to have as a clinician, as this supervisor could call into a session in the middle of a session with the patient, be like, no, 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 go here. Don't go there. Ask this. Um, and, and it was just really, really, you know, a really sound kind of experience. I love it, you know. And and in that setting, we would still debrief. We would still do a group supervision where we all got to bring our cases and our notes, you know, in group. Um, and then I was in a third environment where supervision was if it was structured and if it was happening, it was a miracle. I mean, like maybe once a quarter, we finally had it as scheduled, you know, um, and that was stressful. It was really stressful. That supervisor was always available, that an open door policy. So there was a lot of warmth, a lot of nurturing, and we all learned from that. We definitely took something from that. But if that was all I had by itself, I don't know that I would have been able to independently succeed, you know, at this level. I think that I would have been safe for that moment. And definitely I would have known what to do on the job because again, that supervisor was available. There were open door, um, but it was chaotic. It was, it was all over the place. There was no, I had no chance to fill out a form of my toughest cases and present it to that person and say, how do I answer this kind of stuff? Like that, that rarely happened, you know? In California, speaking for marriage and family therapist associates, so pre-licensed MFTs, the requirement is both individual supervision and group supervision when pre-licensed. What is the research between these two modalities? Is one better? If, if, we, if as a program, we only have so much um, financial capital and time capital to spend, which is better bang for our buck, group or individual? Yeah, I mean, great question. I, I would not, I would not go too deep into the <laughs> into the weeds on like the research because I I honestly don't think we have very sound research in comparing the two. Right? That that's just my honest opinion because I've I've looked and I've seen some things that are very anecdotal. Um, but let's let's go to just logic, right? If if you are an introvert and you're in group supervision, you're gonna maybe not push yourself to ask the questions you need to ask. You're going to want to have a supervisor that may want, they may approach you and say, okay, so-and-so, what about you? How are your cases doing? And they may have to be very directive. But what if you don't get a very directive supervisor and they're more open process and they're just letting people share openly in group supervision? There's a risk that you've gone month after month, week after week, you know, year after year, dare I say, not actually getting supervision but rather learning vicariously from other people's, you know, which, you know, again, it's not all or nothing. It's not that that's bad per se. You're just not getting the full, the full bang, right? In individual supervision, someone can really, really dig deeper with your interventions, what you expected to happen with that intervention, and then what actually happened, how you can observe, you know, the patient's reactions to your interventions differently through the lens of that supervisor. You can really go a lot deeper with your clinical skills and growing and sharpening kind of those muscles and those that, that responsiveness between you and the patient in individual. It's just about time, you know. Um, if, I, if I'm baking 20 cakes, are they going to taste the same, you know, uh, in terms of quality and consistency is if I just baked one and, and really focused on, you know, the ingredients and focused on every single element of it. Like, you know, it's, it, again, it's about focus and time. I think, I think there's some logical aspects to say that, you know, both can be beneficial. One can be risky if that's all you've gotten, you know, if all you've gotten is individual, you've never gotten group. You don't even know how other clinicians act. You know, in fact, in fact, your entire 
paradigm is based on what that supervisor has experienced and yourself. That's all you've got. So you've really limited, you know, your capacity, right? So, so I mean, I would argue that, you know, individual only is just as risky as group only. Um, if you really, really are after becoming the best clinician you can, get any and every form of, of supervision, mentorship, and training you can. Get, get coaching from a colleague, get coaching from a specialist, get some time with a clinical supervisor, get some time in a group, attend a training, attend a conference, network, you know, whatever you can, you know, just, just be, be vicious about about your learning you know capacity especially in those first two to three years of the profession it's just such a great time to, to point yourself in the right direction you know i'm nodding along to what you're saying and um i had similar supervision experiences to you and i and i had the milan model of recordings and watching it back and going through it both in group and in individual and i'm glad you bring up that element of it because there are so many different kinds of supervision and I think sometimes just like with evidence-based practices for mental health treatment, we get so focused on a certain kind and say, this is the kind we have to do that something gets lost in translation because it becomes so complicated. We have to be so adherent that we don't maintain that consistency, which you're saying is fundamental to doing this effectively. Yeah. I mean, you know, even in, in, you know, it's funny about the Milan model, like here's what I'll say. Does, do, you know, does a clinical supervisor have to have observed clinical interventions or counseling happen by their supervisee? No, I'm not going to say have to, you know, um, for clinical supervision to be effective. Can it help? Certainly. Um, however, as a counselor, do you have to have been observed by someone as you're counseling? I would say without a doubt, yes. I could care less who that is, you know, draft a fidelity checklist, draft a goals checklist, draft a behavior checklist, or get one, you know, online and hand it to a peer, a colleague, hand it to another counselor, hand it to your supervisor and ask them to observe your session. If you're counseling and you're fully credentialed and no one has been in that room with you while you're with patients, how do you even know what you're doing is, is right or effective? Like, I mean, I don't know in any other field where supervision is supervision without observation. I, I don't think that's a thing anywhere else. And yet, for some reason in counseling, we've allowed it to kind of evolve into this, where supervision can occur and even be completed without observation happening. You know, And, and that, that to me is, is pretty risky. And unusual. <laughs> you make a very yeah. good point compared to other industries. One of the things that I've been challenged with as a clinical supervisor and I'm sure other clinical supervisors would agree, is, is that um, fine line you're walking, particularly with new professionals, about the focus on the learning and the intervention, and then on the personal development aspect, and that holding of tension between these ideas. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Like from a systems perspective, why I mean, historically, clinical supervision seems to break down in the addiction space in particular. Is that part of the phenomenon? Because we see many people who have backgrounds in their own struggles with addiction that go into addiction treatment. Like, where's the breakdown happening to providing adequate supervision, but also addressing both of these elements, the, the learning, but also the personal development, which I think is probably the scariest part for most supervisors and for most organizations. It's like, well, I don't know if we want to talk about that person's addiction when we're in clinical supervision. Like, right, right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's, it's hard, right? Like, I mean, 
I can't remember how long ago it was, but I know, I, I want to say it was in 2014, SAMHSA and NADAC did like a, a quick survey of the profession. And, and the results of that were pretty valid. Like almost, a, you know, decade after decade, we've seen this that about 60 to 68% of credentialed professionals in addiction treatment spaces, you know, are, are in these surveys were comfortable enough to say that they themselves were also in recovery. Right. And, and so, so we know also, if you're in this field, you know, that you're going to bump into professionals who are, are in recovery and whether that's personal for them and they keep it private or it's public knowledge and their program and they've self-disclosed that to their colleagues. You know, I, I think the, the big question for recovery should be the question for all professional helpers is, is how am I maintaining my own emotional balance? as I'm helping others maintain theirs, you know, what's happening inside of me while I'm here hearing these stories that could potentially be triggering or similar to my own story, right? And, and that question, it, it's not about whether you're in recovery or not, you could you could have nothing to do with substance related issues, and be hearing someone's challenge of grief of loss of how they're managing feelings of hopelessness, or feelings of, of financial issues that deal to it that that sometimes build up anxiety or stress-related responses. And you're dealing with that too, right? And so how is that triggering you? And how are you responding to those triggers? And and has your maintenance plan sort of drifted as you become more and more professional in this field, which is what happens, you know? Sometimes if a counselor had a counselor, I'll just ask them, hey, when was the last time you spoke with that counselor? Have you done a booster session? You know, are they still alive? If so, can you meet with them? If not, you know, can we get you a new one, right? Like, I mean, so, so I, th- I think it's it's more about our maintenance plan. You know, what got us to the place where we felt qualified to help others, and and how do we either find that recipe and redo it five years in, six years in, seven years in, or or how do we build a new recipe or a new maintenance plan that that helps us maintain stability in the field? Um, I honestly don't think that clinical supervision for professionals in recovery differentiate that much from clinical supervision for all professionals. I think it's all about, you know, having you monitor your triggers, your emotional stability and, and, and what works and what helps for you and whether or not you're doing that. I've had a patient, I've had a, a supervisee that I had to say to them, you know, when we first started supervision, you told me your sponsor was, was the bomb was like the reason you're here. They were like your surrogate parent, surrogate brother, surrogate sister. Like they filled in all these emotional gaps for you. You've been in this program for three years and, and I haven't heard you mention your sponsor, you know, is, is there a reason for that? Are you still connected with this person? Are they still a part of your life? You know, and I asked that because this person was having a lot of reactiveness to how they were dealing with their patients. And, you know, a patient was, was, you know, showing up and, and getting mad because they were on a hold and, and, you know, in, 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 uh, opioid treatment programs or in medication assisted treatment programs a hold for us is like you need to go see your counselor before you get your dose you know and so this patient is on a hold and they're just having an outburst like get that hold off you know why are you doing this and obviously it's because they had you know repeated um negative findings on their tox screening so something isn't quite right so they need to speak to a counselor and 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 so they're they're having an outburst and now this counselor is reacting to that patient's reactivity and saying, you know, we're not going to let you get back on take homes, you know, and, I mean, it's just this, you know, this kind of fight happening, right? And so when we, when I see this with a counselor that I was supervising, I remember, you know, having that conversation about their sponsor. Now, now, in that person's maintenance plan, their sponsor was really key. In, in another person's maintenance plan, it may be about family time. It may be about getting those workouts in. It may be about, you know, something that was 
promoting their wellness, right? Before they even got here or something that got them to there. And so sometimes you just go right back to that as a maintenance plan. It's not about monitoring relapse. It's about monitoring your wellness, you know, to be able to help others and your safety, you know, to be able to help others. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I hope, I hope that helps answer your question. I feel like I, I went too much information on that one. I actually really appreciate your answer because I think this is one of the elements that we don't discuss about clinical supervision. And it is that personal development piece, that wellness piece. And I think not only is that a common element that's uncomfortable for supervisors, but it can be so uncomfortable for supervisees. I remember the first time that I cried in supervision and it was like, am I doing something wrong? You know, (laughs) because to me, a meeting of any kind is something formal where feelings may not be involved. And I come from a corporate America based environment. So, you know, my joke was I like generally bleached my feelings before walking into a room with my folio. Um, So to switch into a different paradigm was a huge adjustment for me. and And it felt it was jarring initially, but it was also like lovely where it's like, oh, so I can talk about what's coming up for me. This is okay. Um, but I think when we're looking at this from a forest through the trees perspective, part of the problem is that we're as a field, not talking about this element of burnout, of compassion fatigue, of vicarious trauma, of needing some place to kind of sift through that and that clinical supervision can help be a stopgap. Yeah. I always say, you know, you can only monitor so much quality um, through chart audits, you know, because technically it's like, it's like hearsay, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like trying to evaluate someone's personality based on their Facebook comment history, you know, and right. It's like, I mean, come on, like you're, you're reading the report from someone of what they remember happening in a session. Like, so, so clinical supervision is really, I think the most powerful and authentic way to monitor quality care because of exactly what you just said. This individual, the helper, they are actually the, the, you know, they're actually the source of, of treatment intervention to this patient. So you've got to check on them as a person, you know, because technically they matter if they're, they're the helper, right? They're the tool of help. So, I mean, you you have to check on how they're doing and, and yes, I mean, you know, building empathic skills, also building self-awareness. I mean, I, I could not believe how, how not aware I was of my own self coming into this field and almost every supervision session. I mean, it went back to back with tears for me. I mean, so it's not just you, Beth, I'll say like, (laughs) and most of the tears, most of the tears were like, man, I can't believe what a jerk I am. Like, I can't believe that I was viewing this patient and what they were reporting through the lens of my own bias and through the lens of my own expectations of other people, right? And, you know, even the simple things of like expectations for performance or hitting goals, I held myself to a standard that I I, I sort of translated to other patients that looked and, and were like me, you know? And so anytime I was working with, with, you know, with, with men that with black men, especially if they were, if they had immigrant parents and they had the same path of me, if they were on my caseload, my supervisor caught me time and time again, where I was holding and taking ownership of their goals as if it was my goal, you know? And I had no awareness that I was doing that, that I had this higher pressure that I put on them. And it wasn't even about them. It was about me, you know? That self-awareness, sharpening that tool, me, the counselor, it, it could not have happened without a supervisor catching and making me aware of those instances, right? Um, which, by the way, that also that also leads to, to 
you know, compassion fatigue and burnout. When, when, you know, that's why self-awareness is so, so key in the field is that, you know, without clinical supervision, you really can't build your own self-awareness without well-monitored self-awareness, you're going to burn out quicker. You know, it's like you're using gas, you know, for a car that needs oil, you know? Um, so I've, I've had the same thought and thank you for your self-disclosure. And the other, the element that I see too, I've been in workplaces where you would get gold stars for being overwhelmed. So when you say I was up this late working on my progress notes, or I had to stay this many hours extra, or I did this much overtime, all of that was celebrated. And it was, it was fascinating to me because in morning meeting, it was almost like this competition of like, who's more miserable? I am there you win. (laughs) And I think that that's such a common occurrence, particularly in these publicly funded community-based programs, because there's so much adherence to productivity. And I, I was speaking with a professional a couple of weeks ago who does community mental health, but she said, in our program, we don't have productivity. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) There's no sword? What is this? Um, Because it is, at least from my experience, such a a common phenomenon is just unbelievable overwhelm, really high caseloads. And then all the more important put on clinical supervision to catch and correct because... um, because of the potential for major ethical violations and boundary violations when we're in a really vulnerable and overwhelmed place. I, I think in our field, it's part, part of, part of the, the high volume issue isn't, it's not always that someone's trying to crank out another penny. Like maybe that's someone's intention somewhere. I don't know. I don't know who this person is and what, what dark, what dark office they're lurking in. But, you know, let's imagine that that's not the intention. We, if, if we really zoom out a little bit, we know we're in a workforce and have been in a workforce that is, it's, it's, not, it's not apples to apples. Like there's not enough qualified individuals to provide the care that's needed for the amount of people that need it. You know, there's way too many patients in need and, and we don't have enough counselors. We don't have enough, you know, professional helpers. We're, you know, we're, we're hiring peers and we're getting these grants for peers. And I've heard some counselors say, oh my God, they're doing our job for us. I mean, not really. They're working in their scope of practice they should be leveraging their lived experience, not clinical tools they don't know. Um, and 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 so, I mean, part of we're hiring peers and folks saying, well, they're taking our jobs. And I'm like, what? Is there a counselor that needs a job? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me where they are. <laughs> yeah, like, give me their number. We, I mean, yes, we we need counselors. Like, so, so you know, we're a lot of these workforce additions, case managers, care coordinators, peers, is helping to fill the gap of care that we don't have enough folks, you know? Now, what I will say is, 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 you know, the, the management of productivity versus self-care, your ability to keep being productive, you know, let's say year over year, um, it, it, it's it's almost impossible to manage that balance without a supervisor, you know, without someone to be responsible for case assignments, you know. And so that is something that I'm really proud of at, at BHG, at Behavioral Health Group. Like we have, we have pretty much made it a staple where it is the clinical supervisor, which hopefully is the highest credentialed, you know, clinical individual in the program that's responsible for case assignment. That way it's not coming from the, the program director or someone who's in charge of revenue. It's coming from someone who's just responsible for clinical. And it does help us to kind of keep things in balance because, you know, in, in OTP settings, 
not all patients are the same, right? And same thing with, with inpatient residential. So, so it's like, you don't want, I mean, even in private practice, you don't want 22 patients who are borderline, you know what I'm saying? And you also in OTPs, opioid treatment programs, you don't want 22 patients who are like a code seven or meaning they're on dailies where they have to come in every day for their dose, right? Like that is impossible to keep up with and manage the, the amount of hours in the day just doesn't add up, you know, you'll never be able to do it. So having a supervisor, you know, kind of dice through all those details, the individual's diagnosis, their needs, how long they've been in treatment, how new they are, medication induction versus stabilization, right? Having a supervisor help space through some of that as they assign the caseload really makes a big difference from both an operational and a clinical side. Now, the other part is how we interpret productivity. And, and the way we are interpreting productivity is patient engagement. And, and so we are saying, okay, if we are looking at productivity in terms of people who are doing numbers and sense and you know ratios, we want to look at it as if this patient is new, they have high needs, they have high risk, they also have some home or environment issues, right, where there's there's a safety concern because of where they live or, where, or if they don't have somewhere to live, then, yeah, we're going to make sure they're on the caseload of someone who has the time mm-hmm. to help with all those resources. The wraparound, right. Because exactly, because that one counseling hour is not going to be enough for that person. You may have to be on the phone with a social worker, financial aid representative. You may have to be on the phone with someone who's doing their environment, someone in corrections. All those hours, it, it's about safety. And, it's, and safety and patient engagement have to be connected if we're looking at it through a clinical lens. So that's how we try to interpret it and how we t- try to respond back and have that dialogue with with folks who are looking at productivity. And so that way, it's 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 more of an open discussion. And and by the way, that's where clinical supervisors make a big difference because they have the expertise to have that dialogue, you know, and they know how to understand both the business intention and the operational intention. And they also bring in the clinical expertise to help them better define productivity through the lens of patient engagement and patient safety. It sounds like then if you're looking at a program that historically has not had that much of a focus on clinical supervision, part of it is shifting kind of the paradigm from a reactivity model to a responsive model, the, the focus on prevention and early intervention, <laughs> and how do right. we start re-injecting resources to develop some of these nuances that might be lacking. Yeah, yes, well said, well said. And and I, again, there's another parallel. It's like, how do we work with patients who don't have the resources they need to make the next step? You know, you may see a patient and say, oh my God, you need to be in here weekly. I mean, there's a lot going on. I need to see you next week. But what if their payer won't cover weekly? What if they don't have enough, you know, insurance or enough funding for weekly? What if that patient doesn't have the transportation or the time off to come in weekly? I mean, how do you adjust your solution to to their needs and their preferences. It's the same thing in in clinical supervision. If you're working with a program that's remote, they haven't had clinical supervision going on for years, are we going to say, hey, you have to hire a clinical supervisor by the end of the month? I mean, that may be an unmanageable goal, right? So instead, you may say, hey, let's let's get let's get the seniority, you know, how many folks do you have here who are clinicians? Who's been here the longest? Let's start with a, a group of peers. Let's get, you know, let you guys review some cases, bring up your most complicated cases once every other week and bring it to this group meeting where all of you as counselors, until we can hire a supervisor, at least you all won't be alone on how you're managing this case. And you can pick through each other's experience to share something. So in other words, start somewhere. Anything is better than nothing, you know, um, and, and you try to inch them closer to patient safety through quality monitoring and, and hopefully get that clinical expert in there eventually. But at the meantime, hit 
you know, set some sort of goal, you know? Thank you. That was actually going to be my next question of, of knowing that many programs are struggling to find qualified clinical supervisors when we're trying to revamp a program and improve these things. It sounds like your advice is look from within if you can't find something from without and work with what you have in the interim to create yep. the, the culture of involved and flexible clinical supervision. Right. Beth, you remember the place we worked at? They used to have this thing called the snap, you know, yes. to, anytime we would train on it, I would... You know, I'll make that noise with my hand because I'm corny. Um, but it's, you know, the strengths, needs, abilities, and preferences. Assess your program's strengths, needs, abilities, and preferences. In other words, assess what's there. What do you currently have, right? And 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 use and leverage what you currently have. Um, find a way to get that learning culture, that supervision culture growing so that you're not in this stuck place of a bunch of individual siloed practitioners working in, in what in most places are an integrated care setting, right? So multiple disciplines working there and no one consulting on the same cases that you're working on. I mean, it's crazy, you know? Um, we, we have to talk. We have to review our cases together. We've got to review our patients together for their own safety, you know? You've presented a lot of boots on the ground strategies today, but also overarching concepts that I hear. And I know you well enough to know that these are your soapbox items where it's like, these are, these are the things we need to do better as an industry and where we're not only failing our staff, but we're failing the, the patients and the clients because we are so overwhelmed and undersupported ourselves. Um, so thank you for bringing more attention to this topic. Um, Samson, we could keep going, but for our, our listeners that want to learn more about you um, and also want to learn more about this topic of how to have integrated clinical supervision in these treatment centers, how do folks get in touch with you? How do they read what you've read? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So, I mean, you know, the, the funny thing is that NADAC is a great way to, to read what I've read or learn some of the things I've learned. Um, NADAC, the Associate for, Association for Addiction Professionals, I was the director of training professional development for a few years there. And a lot of the tools and resources that are specific for addiction treatment um, and clinical supervision and addiction treatment can be found on NADAC's website. They have a textbook on clinical supervision in the addiction treatment written by Dr. Thomas Durham. He's the protege of Dr. David Powell, who is considered the father, you know, of clinical supervision. Um, they have a great, you know, series on, on the same topic. Now, if you're looking for like really, really practical solutions, um, you could find me on LinkedIn, you know, really easily just search Samson Teclamarium. Um, I think my, I think my LinkedIn handle or tag or whatever you call those things. Sorry, y'all. Um, <laughs> uh, old school here. Um, I think it's, it's a uh, Sam's tech. So S A M S T E K. Um, linkedin.com slash in slash Sam's tech. But uh, I'll also make sure Beth Clearly Clinical has that. And I would love for you just to send me a message. Let me know. I'm happy to have a chat and talk about, you know, some of the struggles and challenges of clinical supervision, how to reprioritize it or help it bubble back up to the surface. I mean, I just want to make sure we're all on the same mission that we know that it has to happen. Um, if I were a clinician right now, and I know that I've gone four or five years where no one has reviewed any of my cases, no one has given me advice or seen how I'm working, I would be concerned. It's so hard, you know, um, to, to be in this field on your own. And so let's, you know, let's chat and find a way. I mean, there's a lot of resources. And nowadays, telehealth opened up telesupervision for us. And, and I think it's pretty awesome when we realize that 
at least within our state, the credentials in the, is you know pretty much the same. Someone could be four hours away from me in my own state, but they may have the credential I need to get clinical supervision. So there's some telesupervision models out there and, and, um, and platforms out there that I think really help solve this for those of us who are remote or, or feel kind of trapped in a more rural space and we just don't think we have an option. Um, you know, that glass is shattered now, right? We have an option. Technology has given it to us, you know? I'm glad you bring up that element too. And that's one thing I've seen in the field is, is a push on um, more resources to connect supervisees and clinical supervisors and make it an easier, more streamlined process than just randomly cold calling somebody and hoping that they do supervision. So thank you for that element too, because I think that's part of the missing piece is the structure to hold it. And I think we're getting there. Um, Samson, it's always wonderful to see you. Thank you for spending this time with us. And again, to our listeners, uh, to get in touch with Samson, please visit him on LinkedIn. His last name is Teclamarium. And also check out NADAC's website, which is N-A-A-D-A-C, to get some more resources about how to improve your clinical supervision with your facility. Thank you for joining us, Samson. Thanks, Beth. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.